to my knowledge, no one has ever saved my life. At least not like Cheryl Treadway could say someone had saved her life. See, she was being held hostage with her kids by an ex-boyfriend locked inside of an apartment. After hours and hours and hours and hours of being held hostage, she finally convinced him to let her order a pizza for the kids through the Pizza Hut app on her phone. On that app, when you're making an order, there's a, a place to make special requests. And in just a few words, she was able to explain the situation that she was in. And by God's grace, the employee at Pizza Hut who was taking that order understood what was happening, contacted the police. The police were able to negotiate, get her and her kids out of that situation. To have your life saved, there needs to be three ingredients. First, there needs to be a real and imminent threat. Second, the person needing saving needs to be totally helpless to save themselves. And third, a willing and able savior. We're going to see all three ingredients in Isaiah chapter 53 when it talks about how God has saved us. So if you brought a Bible with you, I'd love for you to pull it out, pull the listening guide you received on the way in out as well. And uh, I would love for you to write some things down because today's message is some facts. They are life-changing facts. And at the end, I'm going to ask you one simple question. What do you do now? And that's not a question I'm going to ask, answer for you. Um, that's one you're going to have to answer yourself. So some facts, and then what do you do now? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root of, out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you were here last week, you remember that we talked about how God had offered himself personally to the people of Israel. His exact words, I will be your God and you will be my people. But they rejected him. They turned their back on him and instead took their chances with the idols of the nations that surrounded them, believing them to be real, these idols, when in fact they were not real. So God would send his prophets to warn, to woo, to remind God's people that their best possible outcome is in a relationship with God. But they rejected him. So finally God sends Isaiah. And Isaiah's message is one of warning and woe. Empires are coming to destroy Israel, to burn Jerusalem to the ground. But even inside these warnings and woe are threads of future redemption and future salvation. And Isaiah makes it clear as God is speaking through him, that salvation is going to come through a servant. That's how verse 13 starts when it says in chapter 52, behold my servant. So everything we've read today is about God's servant 
through whom he would, will, will save Israel. And we know that because in verse 1 of chapter 53, which we've already read, it says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Anytime you see in the scripture a reference to God's arm, it is a metaphor for God's salvation. I'll show you an example. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. God's people are enslaved by the Egyptians and God is going to rescue them. He's going to save them from the Egyptians with an outstretched arm. So God is going to save Israel even after Jerusalem is burned and they are scattered to the four winds. God is going to save Israel through his servant. And we know that that servant is Jesus. 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Isaiah prophesies about his coming. The life, death, ministry, resurrection of Jesus is a fulfillment of this very specific prophecy from 700 years before. And here are a few things that I want you to know about that salvation. Follow along with me. Number one, the servant became common for our salvation. It says in verse two, for he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. I was listening to a, a interview about leadership and it was talking about when a company goes to pick a CEO, they usually default to stereotypes that are not true. Uh, they've proved now scientifically that anybody can be a CEO. Essentially, it doesn't matter what your personality is or whether you're a male or female, tall or short. But when companies go to pick CEOs, they ignore all of that scientific proof and fall back on stereotypes. Like when I say, what does a CEO of a Fortune 500 company look like? Probably most of us are picturing the same kind of person. Usually a man, very tall, broad shoulders. I always think thick black hair, right? <laughs> winsome personality, walks into the room, everyone's attention right on him, walks that fine line of being uh, winsome, but also would cut your throat, probably did to get in the place that he's at. That is the stereotypical CEO. And even though that's not true, that's what most of us are picturing. Well, the same thing was happening to God's people. When they were picturing the savior that would come to rescue them, they were falling back on stereotypes. In fact, when they went to pick their first king, Saul, you know how they chose him? Because he was tall and handsome. King David, who followed him, handsome, a military leader, very charismatic, uh, Solomon, David's son, all of those same descriptions. So when God's people are hearing about a savior that's going to come, you know that in their mind, they're thinking of this stereotype. And yet Isaiah says, no, when the savior servant comes, he's going to be common. It says in verse two, for he grew up like a plant before him. When a plant grows, you don't notice it until after the growth has come. That growth happens invisibly every day. And that's how Jesus was raised, the same way that you were raised. He started as an infant and day by day, invisibly grew up. 
without anyone noticing. And it says like a root out of the dry ground, he came up. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, immediately went to Egypt, spent a few years there, but was raised in Nazareth. And Nazareth was a nowhere town. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples almost did not become a disciple because in his mind, God's Savior cannot come from Nazareth. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. He, he came from nowhere, invisibly being raised. He became common. It, it says that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Now remember, Jesus is the pre-existing eternal son of God. He always has been. And he always has been the theme of angel songs. When angels worship God, they are worshiping God as we see in the scripture, in connection to Jesus. The theme of angel songs, eternally existing before the foundation of the world, he has always had majesty. But Philippians chapter two says that he took on the form of a servant. So he took off the form of that majesty, that glory, to become a servant born in Bethlehem. He became common for our salvation. Number two, the servant was rejected for our salvation. Verse three, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. To be despised is, is literally the opposite of being esteemed. A few years ago, I was at the national championship NCAA basketball tournament that was here in Houston. Championship game between North Carolina and Villanova. It was a close game back and forth, uh, taking the turns, having the lead, even up until the last few minutes, and Villanova won on a game-winning shot. Now, if you've been in an arena or you've seen a game like that on TV, whether it's basketball, baseball, football, it doesn't matter. When the game is won at the last minute, whoever won the game for them, threw the touchdown, caught the touchdown, made the basket, hit the home run, one guy on the team or girl runs over, puts their arms around the hero, and then they always do the same thing. They pick up that person. Not to necessarily put them on their shoulders, but they lift them off the ground. And then everybody else comes and they all fall to the ground. Which seems like a terrible way to celebrate. Hey, we've just won. Now let's all hurt ourselves as we jump on one another. But the very first thing that happens, wrap their arms around them and lift them up off the ground. Because they're esteeming the person who threw the touchdown, hit the home run, made the shot. So even instinctually, we know to esteem somebody is to lift them up. Well, to despise somebody is the exact opposite. It's to, to bring them down. So if you despise somebody, you're, you're not neutral. You are actively with your words, thoughts, manner, bringing that person down. So it, it wasn't that Jesus was just ignored as a servant savior. He, he was despised. People were trying to bring him down. We see this literally in Luke chapter four. Jesus is speaking in his hometown of Nazareth in the synagogue And it says in verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and they drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Now, if you say that you're from Houston, you were, you grew up in Houston, most people that live here are not going to know you. 
I mean, you might as well say to somebody, I grew up on Mars. The chances that you're going to interact with somebody who would know you in a town this large, very small. But if you said that you grew up in Nazareth, everyone in the town knew who you were. This is not a big place. The grandparents knew who Jesus was. The parents, Jesus' peers of his own age, the children, they all knew who Jesus was, son of Mary and Joseph. And they are not just rejecting him passively. They're trying to kill him. Jesus said this was going to happen. He he says in chapter 9, verse 22, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and be raised. So when Jesus tells his disciples, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be killed and I'm going to be raised on the third day. He, he, he doesn't just skip to those two things. He says, first, I'm going to be rejected. He brings that of up to a level of importance along with his crucifixion and resurrection. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to be raised from the dead. Why? Because Isaiah had prophesied by the spirit of God 700 years earlier that the savior would serve us by being rejected. Number three, the servant was full of sorrow. Verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Now the reason Jesus is able to bear our griefs is because verse three said he's acquainted with grief. He's able to carry our sorrow in verse 4 because he's a man of sorrows in verse 3. I think the number one silent accusation that we make about God in our heart is that God is unsympathetic. That he doesn't care. That he has a plan and that plan runs over me and he doesn't care. That while I'm here suffering, you're here suffering, He's able to help, but he's so committed to the plan that he just barrels right over us and he doesn't care. But Isaiah chapter 53 proves different because God could have sent any kind of savior. He could have made sure that Jesus was born in an extremely wealthy family in Jerusalem, be brought up in the top rabbinical school. Uh, be guaranteed a position among the high priestly council. He could have made sure that Jesus' life was as easy as possible because remember, Jesus is God's son. And fathers, if you were sending your son on a path, don't you do everything that you can do to make sure that that path is as easy as possible? You do everything you can to take all the obstacles out of the way, to make it as smooth as possible. And yet that is not what God does here He says the path is the path of rejection. The path is the path of sorrow. Which reminds us to not minimize how our pain will be influential in other people coming into Jesus' kingdom. As sad as it is to say and as hard as it is to admit, it's the difficult parts of our story that will make the biggest difference in people's lives. No one's life has ever been changed by a testimony of my parents were super rich. They gave me everything that I want. I went to Yale and now I'm a stockbroker and I'm a billionaire. How can I minister to you? That, that does not happen. 
Your soul has never been connected with somebody who's had it easy the whole time. But when somebody is vulnerable and says, this is the pain that I've carried in my life, and it resonates with the pain that you've carried in your life, there's an instant connection. So God is not unsympathetic towards us. In fact, he's even more compassionate than we give him credit for because the Savior he sent for us was filled with sorrow. So it makes Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11 that much more powerful knowing what kind of servant he is when he says this, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says to us, give me your sorry, sorrow. I'm a man of sorrows. I'll carry it for you. Give me your grief. I'm acquainted with grief. I'll bear it for you. The servant was filled with sorrow for our salvation. And finally, number four, the servant was crushed for our salvation. Verse five, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It says he was wounded. Jesus was wounded when they blindfolded him. After he had been arrested and the soldiers responsible for him took turns punching him in the face. And mocking him saying if you're a prophet then you know the names of those of us who are punching you. He, it's by his stripes we are healed. They put stripes literally on his body when they took their whip and flogged him. Straps of leather with bone and glass, metal on the ends of them, ripping open his flesh, potentially exposing his, exposing his bowels. By his stripes we're healed. He was crushed. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus is having one last supper with his disciples. And in the middle of it, he holds up a cup. And this is what he says in verse 20. And likewise, the cup after he had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So in the middle of this Passover meal, he holds up the cup. The cup is filled with wine. The wine comes from grapes, but not just any grapes, crushed grapes. And he says, this, this cup moving forward for you is not just wine. It's my blood. And where did that blood come from? Because the servant was crushed. And why was he crushed? Isaiah 53 tells us, for our transgressions, in our iniquities. Because like Israel, God has offered himself personally to us. And like Israel, we've said, no, thank you. I'm going to take my chances with something else that might be faster, might demand less of me, might be cleaner, might be easier. It was for our sin that Jesus was crushed. And Jesus made it clear that God had delegated judgment to him. 
John chapter five, verse 22. He says, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. So God has said, I'm gonna judge the world, but I'm delegating that responsibility to Jesus. So imagine with me that we're all in the galley of a, of a courtroom watching a trial happen. There's been a young man who's made some poor decisions. And at first he thought about pleading not guilty, see if he could get away with it or there'd be some hiccup in the criminal justice system. But at the end of the day, he said, I got caught. I did the thing. I'm just going to take my chances and, and plead guilty. And so he puts in a guilty plea. So the judge dispenses with the jury. No need for that. They can skip right to the sentencing. And the judge sentences him a fair sentence. He doesn't let him off easy because he pled guilty. He gives him the fair and right sentence. And the judge then nods to the bailiff because it's time to put the cuffs on the young man. And the young man's going to go and serve his jail term. And the bailiff walks over. But instead of putting the cuffs on the young man, he puts the cuffs on the judge and the judge goes away to serve the sentence of the young man. That is Isaiah chapter 53. We are a room of guilty people. Sinners. We like to think of ourselves as good natured, but you know that you're not. Guilty. And Jesus is the judge. God delegated judgment into his hands, and he says, So you're guilty? It's clear. And I'll serve your sentence. Come and put the cuffs on me. And, and literally, literally, that's what they did. A mob came and they put cuffs on the Son of God. And they were so scared of him that they brought weapons. And then they, they found people who would falsely accuse him. And then the religious people, the, the quote unquote, the Christians of our day, they handed him over to soldiers who punched him in the face over and over and over and over again. But they were so religious that they couldn't be the ones to just do the thing that they wanted to do and kill him. So they sent him over to the Romans. And the Roman governor, he didn't want to kill him either, but he didn't want a mob on his hand. So he said, let's just beat him until an inch of his death. We'll just leave him barely alive and surely that will satisfy this blood-hungry crowd. And it didn't. They said, crucify him. Crucify him. He put the cuffs on and served our sentence. So the only question we have to ask today is, what are you going to do now? God has made salvation available through his suffering servant. Will you receive it or will you reject it? Will you look for something else? Or maybe today you say, I, I believe. 
uh, believe and receive. And if you've believed and received already, how does this suffering servant change the way that we live? Let's pray.